Hello, and welcome to the April 7th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend, we all got to see the official start of a triathlon season here in North America, with the first full weekend of racing at both Oceanside and Galveston, Texas, for 70.3 events. It was the former that really grabbed all of the spotlight, though, as it featured a hotly anticipated professional field, and despite a slew of withdrawals related to illness and injury, the racing itself did not disappoint. On the men's side, we unfortunately didn't get to see any of Jan Ferdano, Lionel Sanders, or Chris Lieferman, as each was forced to withdraw due to varying illnesses. However, this still left a very deep professional field, and they didn't hold back. Right away, reigning ITU world champion Frenchman Leo Berger established his bona fides by shattering the swim course record with the swim time just north of 22 minutes. A group of six was about a minute back and contained the usual speedy swimmers, including Ben Canute and Eric Lagerstrom. On the bike, Sam Long powered his way to the front after making up his usual deficit of a couple of minutes coming out of the water, and he brought with him Jackson Laundrie, who looked to be having a superb day on the bike. As I was watching, I couldn't help feel that Long was maybe overextending himself on the bike, and this proved to be true as once the run started, he faded pretty quickly out of the top five. The real star of the run, though, was Jason West, who started out some four minutes back of Berger, who had taken the lead, but had cut that in half after the first lap and continued to whittle the lead down to mere seconds with a mile to go. But the Frenchman was clearly aware of what was going on behind him and hadn't burned all of his matches while he ran his way to a new overall record for the day. He kept enough in the tank to surge away from the hard-charging West in the last half mile and secure his very impressive first victory at this distance. Behind him, Jason West and Jackson Laundrie rounded out the podium, while Ben Canute came home in fourth. Sam Long had dropped all the way to seventh after notching the 21st fastest run split, a long way from his usual form. Afterwards, he opined that he was simply not in form yet, but I don't know, I find myself wondering if it isn't something else. He clearly overbiked the difficult course, but that really isn't so different from the way he usually approaches these events. Instead, I wonder if his new coach and his aversion to carbohydrates might have something to do with it? Time and again, we've seen professional triathletes overcomplicate nutrition in their training and racing, and time and again, we have seen how it really doesn't very often end well. Witness the wilderness that Lionel Sanders wandered in for some time until he got straightened out and just got his training and racing nutrition simplified. Now, it's only one race, so we're going to have to wait and see, but the first time out was not a great result for a guy many had thought would feature more prominently as a real threat. On the plus side, the defending champion Jackson Laundrie had another great race here and looks to be in good form, but that was also the case in April last year. The question for him now is can he build off it for the rest of the year or is he going to struggle like he did in 2022? Leo Berger clearly established himself as a threat at this distance in all three disciplines, making him the latest to come from the ITU world and stamp his presence with authority on the 70.3 circuit. It should make for some really exciting professional racing in in the months to come. Now on the women's side, there was no less drama from start to finish. Holly Lawrence had her usual scintillating swim and exited the water with a fairly comfortable lead, but several fast women caught up to her pretty quickly on the bike, and a group of five stayed together for pretty much the entire 56 miles. 
They were Lawrence, Ironman world champion Chelsea Sodaro, Kat Matthews in her first race back after a really hellacious crash back in September, Paula Findlay, and remarkably, Tamara Jewett. The Canadian, who is well known for her blistering fast run speed, has always been kind of hamstrung by a poor bike leg, meaning that she was always having to run from well back. Her presence in the lead bike pack showed that she's clearly been working very hard over the winter to improve in this area and had to have been a major cause of concern amongst the other women. When they came into T2, Lawrence and Matthews left together, with Matthews seemingly jawing at Lawrence about something. It wasn't all that clear if this was friendly or angry, and the crew providing commentary for the outside broadcast was honestly completely unhelpful in this regard. They were wildly speculating without any real insight at all. And I'll get to that later on. At any rate, when Sadaro left transition soon afterwards, it was pretty clear that she looked to be the fastest runner of the bunch. And by the first aid station, she'd taken the lead, looking very fast and very comfortable. Tamara Jewett had been issued a 30-second penalty for blocking towards the end of the bike, and so she'd left T2 later than the other women, but she had to recognize that this was not really a problem for her, given that in most races she was sometimes as much as 10 minutes down from the lead. Within four miles, she had moved into second, and when she went by Sedaro to grab the lead at around five miles, it was as if Chelsea was standing still. It was that impressive. The interesting thing was what a contrast their running styles are. Where Sodaro has a classic, quiet, and fluid gait, Jewett kind of throws her arms wildly side to side and has kind of a grim expression on her face. But despite what she may look like, that woman can absolutely fly, and there was never any doubt that she was going to win, and in a very impressive manner. Sodaro, Matthews, Lawrence, and Finley rounded out the top five. After the race, I was kind of surprised to hear Paula Finley talk about how negative she'd been out on course and how often she thought just about quitting. She had continued on only because of the crowd support and because she didn't want to let anyone down. Given that she finished fifth, this seemed a little bit surprising to me, but it also came as a bit of a realization that even the pros are going to face those kinds of self-doubts while out on course, and like the rest of us, they have to battle through them in order to succeed, and it's a reminder that as age groupers, we should never give up, we should fight through, and that the finish line will come. I do want to mention the live stream on Outside for just a moment, as I feel it continues to be plagued by so many things that make it less than what it could be. On the plus side, there was far less describing what we are looking at on screen than has been the case in the past. There was also better use of camera shots, showing more than one competitor, and a split screen showing where athletes were in relation to each other based on the most recent Ironman tracker splits. What I don't understand is why with today's technology the different bikes or even the athletes themselves can't be outfitted with some kind of GPS technology that would show us real-time where the athletes are in relation to each other and what their splits are, similar to what we see in bicycle races professionally all over the world. It certainly wouldn't add that much weight to the individuals racing and it would certainly add a lot to our viewing if we knew how far ahead each person was, as opposed to waiting for them to cross a timing mat. The biggest plus, though, was the addition of Taylor Nib to the broadcast. Her insights were valuable, and she was much better spoken than the regular crew, who remain, honestly, not particularly interesting or entertaining. Dee Dee Griesbauer, for all of her accomplishments and truly wonderful aspects as a person, is just not very good providing commentary and uses filler words like um far too often. And while it likely was not the choice of the broadcast provider, 
outside ran way too many ads, and they ran them at crucial moments of the race, particularly in the last couple of miles of both the men's and women's run, and it was really pretty egregious. I keep hoping that these broadcasts will improve, and while the visuals are definitely getting better, what we have to listen to remains stubbornly subpar, save for the addition of Taylor Nib. On the show today, I'm going to take a look at some science on the stress and how it affects our health. It's long been understood that stress has important effects on health, specifically cardiovascular health, but how the two are linked, how one actually causes the other, has not been completely elucidated. Now, recent research postulates a mechanism for how everyday stressors actually can cause changes in our blood vessels that then lead to higher risks of heart disease and death. Furthermore, there's also research that suggests that regular exercise may be helpful in acting as a buffer to stress, diminishing these effects and decreasing the overall impacts on morbidity and mortality. I review that evidence in a short while. Later, I'm joined once again by dietitian and nutrition consultant who also happens to be the founder of FuelIn, Scott Tyndall. Scott and I first spoke in episode 109 when we discussed his approach to nutrition, and we both felt that we enjoyed that conversation and had a lot more to cover. So we agreed to get back together, and in this episode we talk about iron supplementation for athletes, a group that is particularly prone to iron deficiency. You can hear that conversation coming up a little bit later. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank once again all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast, who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program, and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast and learn about the different ways you can become a supporter so that you can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. As much as we wish that it wasn't the case, stress is very much a part of our daily lives. Now, clearly, everyone faces their own versions and varying amounts of stress, and that stress can come from all kinds of things. Some of it is related to work, some to life, and some to physiological processes, like how we push our bodies to the limits when we train. But each of these is still technically a stress in that they disrupt our body's normal systems and move us out of a state of normostasis. And This then results in a cascade of emotional, behavioral, and biological reactions to these challenging situations, all of which are aimed at protecting the body from the perceived threat and, together, help promote survival. While this response is an evolutionarily adaptive and is intended to restore homeostasis, the aggregate effects of frequent, repetitive, or prolonged stress system activation— or a a dysregulated or excessive acute stressor response can, through time, result in deleterious adaptations in biological function that initiate and accelerate cardiovascular disease. Essentially, too much stress has consequences, and those consequences have been shown to be particularly profound for our hearts. 
The link between stress and heart disease is strong and has been established time and again by large population studies, so much so that stress is now thought of as a non-traditional risk factor for heart disease, much in line with more traditional risk factors that we usually think about, like smoking, diabetes, obesity, and family history. But precisely how stress, a primarily psychological phenomenon, translates to physiologic disease remains incompletely understood. But there are some theories on how this might come to pass. For example, there is some research to suggest that in adults who are more responsive to daily stress, there seems to be a relative impairment in endothelium-dependent vasodilation, concurrent with the sensitization of sympathetic vasoconstriction that ultimately results in a pro-constrictor milieu. Now, how's that for word salad? <laughs> what this means is that in the cells that line the small blood vessels, there seems to be some inability for relaxation amongst people who are really, really susceptible to stress. And that at the same time, there seems to be a hypersensitivity to signals coming from our autonomic nervous system. And these both get ramped up in conditions of stress and are particularly bad in people who are very vulnerable to stressful situations. The result of these pathological alterations in the peripheral vasculature is that the small blood vessels are in a constant state of constriction, and that this ultimately drives the development of hypertension and eventually cardiovascular disease in adults who are more emotionally vulnerable to daily stresses. Given the impact that stress has on our physiology and how it so clearly has an impact on health and well-being, you may be wondering to yourself whether or not there are ways to mitigate the impacts of stress on our hearts. Well, since I'm talking to you about it, I'm guessing that you won't be surprised to learn that the answer to that question is in fact yes, and that it has something to do with physical activity. First off, though, I should mention that the Probably the best way to curtail the effects on stress on your heart is, of course, to decrease stress in general, kind of a preventative measure. Now, there are a lot of ways to do that. And in many cases, the impacts of strategies such as mindfulness and meditation, yoga, or other mental health strategies can really be quite profound. But, as I'm sure many of you can attest, these kinds of things are not a panacea, and they aren't effective for everyone. Some people are simply much more susceptible to stress than others, and many just have to face higher loads of stress that simply can't be easily managed by any means. It turns out that people who react poorly to stress with negative emotional response in the form of anger, or depression, or anxiety also tend to be those who seem to be at higher risk for cardiovascular disease as a result, though the precise mechanisms that link emotion to physical disease still remain a little bit hard to tease out. Some clues come from animal studies, where it has been shown that the vascular model that I described earlier, where there's this continuous pro-constriction, where the endothelium doesn't really relax very well, well, this clearly seems to have a role in animal studies. In monkeys, when they are faced with stress in the form of an unstable and stressful social setting, they're much more prone to developing atherosclerotic disease or hardening of the blood vessels, and this is very much a precursor to high blood pressure and heart disease. I also reference the impact of the sympathetic nervous system being oversensitized, and the role of this autonomic dysfunction also has been demonstrated in animal studies. When given medications that blunt the sympathetic nervous system over time, animals facing significant stress were shown to have much lower rates of cardiovascular disease. 
Another thing that can help decrease the effects of stress is exercise. Physical activity, even in relatively small amounts of two and a half hours per week, and it doesn't even have to be particularly intense, are unequivocally associated with improved health and the reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, morbidity, and mortality. In addition to this well-studied cardioprotective role, regular exercise also seems to be a particularly effective strategy to reduce stress and improve emotional health related to stress. As an example of its dual beneficial role to reduce responsivity to stress, physical activity has antidepressant-like effects, such that physically fit, more active individuals seem to be both more psychologically and biologically resistant to psychosocial stressors. And yet, people call us triathletes stressed out. How wrong they have been. Well, numerous studies have shown that those who exercise more are, and are in the most physically fit shape tend to also be the most resilient to stress, demonstrating less negative emotional and physical reactions to daily and chronic stressors. It should be said that exercise in and of itself doesn't really help to decrease the amount of stress that people are subjected to. Instead, it just decreases the emotional and physical impacts of those stresses on people's health and well-being. To date, there are no great studies evaluating the impact of exercise on both the vascular and sympathetic nervous system dysfunctions that I've described as they relate to stress. That is to say, no one has yet shown that either of those things are improved necessarily by exercise. But the fact that exercise improves overall cardiovascular health and seems to improve adaptability and the coping with stress suggests that there's probably a role here. It just hasn't yet been shown. And one more thing about this subject before I move on to take a bit more of an overview on this whole kind of thing. I've talked a lot about the physical processes by which stress is linked to cardiovascular disease. Well, at a biochemical level, it's likely that a lot of this process is modulated by inflammation, as is so frequently the case with so many different disease processes. Well, inflammation tends to be something that we can observe by virtue of the fact that there are several markers that we can measure in the bloodstream that are hallmarks for such processes. One study from about a decade ago showed that one such marker, C-reactive protein, or CRP, can be found in much higher concentrations in the settings of stress, and is higher still in people with depression and anxiety. Believe it or not, people who exercise regularly show significantly lower levels of CRP, regardless of how much stress they're facing. This suggests that exercise may be leading to lower amounts of inflammation and essentially giving a kind of buffer against the effects of stress. And it also gives us a plausible biochemical means by which exercise might be conferring protection against stress in our daily lives. A couple of other things to point out about exercise and stress. There was a study in 2015 that showed that families who made time for regular exercise had improved work-life balance and less stress-related to work-life family conflicts. Now, I found this of interest, though I'm guessing that this population in this study was probably not triathletes training for an Ironman, in which case, I'm guessing they might have found more stress related to family conflicts, but maybe that's just me. Still, the idea that making time for exercise can actually reduce stress related to work-life balance is certainly something worth noting and something we should take heart in. 
The last thing that I wanted to comment on was a study from 2014 that looked not just at how exercise impacts stress, but how stress impacts exercise. I think we all understand that when life stresses become particularly egregious, it can become difficult to self-motivate or even dedicate the mental energy required to train in an effective manner. Well, this particular study showed pretty much exactly that. In this study, the researchers found that people who had higher levels of stress were less likely to stick with their planned exercise regimen and subsequently likely had more negative responses to that stress, and you can imagine how this can lead to a kind of destructive downward spiral. Now, the reason that I thought this study was particularly of interest is because I often see in my own athletes a level of stress related to their training that I think can be unhelpful and potentially even detrimental. And maybe you listening to this might find some of this familiar. Look, we're all very competitive people, and it's in our nature to stick with a program that's given to us, especially if it's helping us to attain our goals. But I know that some athletes that I've worked with, and I'm guilty of this as well, can have a very negative reaction to missing a workout or being unable to complete a workout for any variety of reasons. It might be physical or it might be time limitations imposed by work or family, whatever it is. This can cause that athlete to place an undue burden of stress on themselves. They look at their training peaks calendar, they see the red from a missed workout or the yellow because they couldn't get enough of it done, and they really get bothered and they really get stressed about it. Based on the findings of this particular study, you can imagine how this is clearly not going to be helpful. Instead, I think that it's probably better strategy to give ourselves grace and understand that training doesn't always come first in our lives. We're not professionals after all. There are going to be times when other things conspire to interfere with our best laid plans, and we're just not going to be able to get a workout done. I most definitely understand the stress reaction to seeing that red tile on my Training Peaks calendar, and especially the sinking feeling, even when it is completely nonsensical, that, gosh darn it, missing this workout is going to undo everything I have worked for to this point. I think it's much more important that we kind of take a holistic view, that we're doing more damage to ourselves by stressing over the missed workout, and that if we just learn to accept and move on, we're going to be far better off. Better off in how we react and better off in how we are then prepared for our training the next day. And with that little moment of zen, I'm going to leave the subject of stress behind me, at least for now, and remind you that if you have a question you'd like for me to tackle on this podcast, I, I'm open to hearing about it. Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or leave me a message in the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group where you can apply to be a member by answering just a couple of easy questions. I'll grant you access and you can join the conversation there. And however you choose to get your questions to me, don't stress. I'll be all over it. I am excited to welcome back to the podcast, Scott Tyndall. Scott is the CEO of Fuelin, which is the app that aims to help endurance athletes dial in their nutrition to their training. And he has, in a previous life, served as the nutrition coach to professional triathletes and executives, as well as a couple of professional teams in the NHL and professional rugby. And he has more than 20 years of experience in professional sports and in advising in that way. 
He has also served as an expert advisor to companies on nutrition product development and health optimization. And along with his role at Fuelin, Scott is also a Performance Nutrition Advisory Board member at Ironman and has been a guest on this podcast once before. He joined me back in episode 109, but we spoke after that episode and we both enjoyed that conversation and wanted to have another one. And so we discussed possible topics and uh, we kind of honed down on the idea of having a, a follow-up conversation on iron and specifically the issue of iron deficiency in athletes. So Scott, welcome back to the TriDoc Podcast. It's a pleasure to see you back here again. And I look forward to this conversation on iron and iron deficiency in athletes. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I will just say I'm not the CEO of Fuel In. My CEO might actually get a bit upset at me, but I'm, I'm one of the co You know, I think it's the second time I did that too. I think I introduced <laughs> you as the CEO last time and you corrected me and I haven't corrected my own paperwork. So uh, I apologize. I, cor- I was giggling to myself as, as you're saying it. So yeah, no, Jonathan will be, he is the CEO, Jonathan Lee, but I certainly am one of the founders and, you know, uh, one of the executives on the on the company. So, but thank you for the introduction. I'm really, really pleased to be back. Last conversation was super enjoyable and really interesting. And from what I understand, your listeners enjoyed it. And so, hopefully, we can put forward some more interesting uh, concepts related to nutrition, in particular, on today, and and hopefully give them a lot of practical takeaways. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's interesting. You know, a lot of my listeners are participating at 70.3 and 140.6 events that are branded with the Ironman logo. And yet, I myself have, in reading the literature, been surprised to see how pronounced and common iron deficiency is amongst endurance athletes. So, what, what is the scope and the magnitude of this problem, Scott? Well, I think it depends on, you know, which literature you're reading and which research. And obviously they are, you know, epidemiology sort of, you know, points in time. But, you know, I think I mentioned last time a study as recent as 2016, which is, you know, I guess now seven years beyond, you know, where we are today. But, I mean, they were talking about, you know, female triathletes having at least one episode of iron deficiency or iron anemia, 60% of female triathletes. Now, that was a group, you know, it wasn't a huge group of athletes, but it was very elite level athletes. And that was taken over, a, what, a six-year period. Males, 37%, you know, prevalence. I'm not sure which papers you've read of recent times, but it's certainly something that is prevalent in the literature and anecdotally, as I mentioned last time, I am seeing a huge amount of iron deficiency in triathletes, female and male. Yeah, so much of it depends on where you make the cutoffs, like you said, and and those mm. those are not hard and fast. Mm. The paper I came across was a review paper from actually not so much a review paper, but a paper from 2020 that cited in it numbers that come from, I think, the same article that you're referring to in 2019, 15 to 35% of females, 3 to 11% of males, which is really a high number. The 15 to 35% is not that much higher than I think what we see in the general population of, of women. Just women in general are much more prone to iron deficiency. But yeah. I know myself, I was really surprised to see such a high number for males. What are some of the things that you have encountered that make athletes, especially men, so much more prone to iron deficiency? 
Well, I think actually, Jeff, before we even go there, do you want to define, I think it's probably important for the listeners to understand maybe the definition of iron deficiency and then iron deficient anemia and that. Do you want to? So yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a really good that. point. Maybe before we get into what causes it and then what can be done about it, maybe just define yeah, it. Yeah, that's so a really that good athletes point. Athletes are listening. Yeah, that's a really good point. We should definitely make note of that. There, there is a difference. Iron deficiency is defined as total body iron stores being low, but not having an impact on hemoglobin levels, which really clinically is the most important reason we have iron in our body. And we should probably just mention iron is one of those things that we have to take in as part of our nutrition because our bodies have no ability to get it from the environment in any other way. We don't synthesize it. So if we don't get a continuous amount of it in our diet, and it doesn't have to be a huge amount, but it has to be, it's one of the micronutrients. If we don't continuously take some in, we're constantly losing a small amount of iron, uh, either in our urine or in our stool or in our sweat. And And as a result of these constant losses, it has to be replaced. We do have a small amount of iron stored in our body. Most of it is almost, most of it is in the form of hemoglobin, which is the molecule in our red blood cells and within our myoglobin. That iron is is in hemoglobin and myoglobin. So hemoglobin is found within red blood cells. Myoglobin is found within our muscles. And in those two forms, it binds to oxygen and allows for oxygen to be transported when it's bound to hemoglobin and then utilized within the muscles by binding it to myoglobin for burning with fuels in order to produce energy so our muscles can work. Other iron is bound up in protein, specifically to ferritin. And we have the ability to store a certain amount of iron by binding it to ferritin, but it's a very small when you compare it to the total body stores of iron. So when we talk about iron deficiency, we could talk about the Stores of iron being low, that being specifically serum ferritin being low, without actually compromising hemoglobin levels. When it's more severe and more pronounced and been present for a longer period of time, then we actually start to see hemoglobin levels fall, and then we start to see iron deficiency anemia. When we talk about these levels, 15 to 35% of female athletes, 3 to 11% of male athletes, what we're talking about is really iron deficiency with normal hemoglobin levels. The amount of athletes who actually have anemia as a consequence of their iron deficiency is a significantly smaller number. And you're right to point that out. That is a a very important distinction that's worth clarifying right at this point. And do you tend to, I mean, when I'm looking at the athlete, I'm tending to look at ferritin levels, hemoglobin and transferrin saturation. They're probably the three key markers I look at for iron deficiency, iron deficiency, non-anemia, and then iron deficiency anemia in the athlete are they yeah. the three that you tend to look at because i know you mentioned then yeah serum iron whereas my understanding i don't tend to look at serum iron levels that much because my understanding through reading the literature is that it's probably more around those three markers that i mentioned gives a better understanding yeah of the, of the athlete yeah i mean transferritin is is found transferritin is found within the serum as well i i think mm-hmm. about total body iron stores as, as ba- bound iron as opposed to any free iron so yes mm-hmm. i i'm always looking at the bound iron and then that iron in the form of hemoglobin yeah Okay. Iron studies are iron studies are complex and not mm. something that I do on a daily day, daily basis as an emergency physician. But definitely, when thinking about iron deficiency, it is certainly 
something that we concern ourselves with more in the context of these total body iron stores. And then again, of course, in the context of any, any athlete who has anemia because of iron deficiency, that's a much bigger problem. Yeah. And it, it, I think what's really interesting, what you said there as well is like, you know, in emergency, it may be something that you're not looking at, but then if we're talking about this specific subset of athletes, i.e. triathletes or endurance athletes, is it something that they should be regularly, you know, or at least periodically testing and looking at in order to understand their status? Because as highlighted by the literature, the prevalence of iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia is higher in this population than, say, gen pop. Um, and I think that that's an important point for these type of athletes to consider as well, and maybe the doctors looking after them. Yeah, I'm not, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of testing for without symptoms. I do agree that in general, lower iron levels without anemia is for the most part asymptomatic and something that athletes need to consider concern themselves with. My feeling in that case is that it should be more specific. So athletes who are at higher risk, and we're going to talk about that. So I think I, I, I think that women definitely, and then any athlete who has a reason to be concerned because of their dietary intake. But I don't think all comers need to be testing their iron level, certainly not on an ongoing basis. At least that's Would my you, feeling on this. Yeah, yeah. And I, look, I think it's, it's good to, you know, <laughs> points of difference. I guess where I always sit with this is I, I look at it as an absolutely a menstruating female who is doing you know, a degree of training, probably somewhere eight plus hours, maybe 10 plus hours a week, I would consider getting a baseline done on them, certainly, and that they should establish. And if they get that test done, and that's part of their regular checkup, and they get the full iron panel done, and it shows that they're actually fine, okay, keep doing what you're doing. Obviously, if signs or symptoms exist, then potentially talk to your physician again, but you may be fine to get through. I guess the point of doing a baseline test is, there are a lot of athletes out there who probably don't know. They, they may just be feeling a little bit, you know, have a little bit of malaise, a little bit of fatigue, irregular sort of training. You know, is it because of the iron? Probably not, but is it potentially contributing to them when we see improvements in iron status? You know, is it, is it the improvement in iron status that ultimately improves their well-being and their performance? It's probably a contributor I'm not going to hang my hat on it and say improving iron status is going to be the thing that makes you a super triathlete or whatnot, but it certainly is a contributor to their total well-being. So that's probably, I see it probably maybe a lower threshold for getting that tested. And again, it might be my experience dealing with the subset of population that because I'm seeing these type of athletes all the time and maybe my threshold has been lowered because I've seen so much of this iron deficiency prevalent. So. I don't think we're that far apart, really. I, I, I certainly, I'm not saying I wouldn't necessarily. Okay. So first of all, I agree. Baseline iron studies in women, menstruating women. Absolutely. I have no yeah. issues with that. And I, I, I encourage that. However, I think if they're initially normal, I don't necessarily think they need to be monitored. That's what I'm saying. If, yeah. however, they show some abnormality, then absolutely. I agree. They should be monitored until they're replenished. And at that point, they might not need to be monitored on an ongoing fashion, maybe a little less often. And then, like you said, somebody's symptomatic, then absolutely they should be checked. And, and if they're low, then they need to be followed. So I, I don't think we necessarily disagree that much. I, I think the issue for me is 
I don't necessarily think every male athlete needs to go and get a baseline iron study unless they're in a higher risk population, specifically those athletes who have a more restricted iron intake because they're vegetarian or especially if they're vegan and they're not getting any animal sources of iron. And me being a a vegetarian myself, I've had iron studies done. My iron's fine, so I don't monitor it. And I do think, though, that male athletes who, especially if they're strictly vegan, even if they're getting large quantities of plant sources of iron, we know that those inorganic sources of iron are not absorbed in nearly as high quantity as are the organic sources seen in meat products, the heme iron, basically. So I think that the people who, males who are exercising regularly and are on a, a diet that where they're only seeing plant-based iron, they, they should get baseline testing. And if they're low, they need to have monitoring for sure. But I, I think on the whole, we're pretty close in terms of how we view iron monitoring and iron testing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I, I guess I sit there and I just think, you know, yeah, everyone, everyone gets a baseline to ensure they're good. If there's no problems, great, we move on. If there is something, then we do something about it. And I always think, you know, prevention's better than cure in that sense. And, you know, you want to, you want to make I, sure. I, yeah. And I, I honestly, that is a very valid strategy. I have no problems with it. Yeah. And I, that's, that is not a hill I would ever be prepared to die on because it is such a low where, where I get, where I, where I, you know, where I get kind of bothered is when it's the iron study is then thrown in with like 40 other tests as, as, you know, baseline. And that's where I start getting like, I don't think so. But I, I, this is one where I think I, I would not have any problem. If someone came to me and said, Hey, I'd like to get some iron studies as a baseline, I'd be like, absolutely go for it. Even if they threw in like vitamin D, which is another one that can often be low when it's not really low, whatever, that's fine. But like I said, I, I tend to be a little bit selective about things in terms of what I want as a baseline. And iron is one that I don't have a real big problem with. And certainly given the numbers that we're seeing in terms of how common it is. And again, I, I mentioned diet is a big issue. You mentioned that just that athletes in general have a higher risk. So do you want to just kind of expand on that? Why, why is it that athletes have a higher risk for iron deficiency besides dietary? Well, so it's the, it's the use of iron, isn't it? Because of the exercise. And I guess, again, we're talking about, you know, a pretty unique population subset population now obviously i'm working with triathletes and ironman athletes all the time and they're doing something that very you know when you look at the percentage of the world population they're doing something fairly unique you know very few people in relative terms are doing what they're doing and you know doing 10 hours of endurance training with some strength training thrown in per week is is not the norm so their use of you know their habitual sort of dietary iron stores is going to be tested so i think if you if you look at that and you think okay is this population more at risk then yes because of what they're doing so i think again like if we're talking gen pop is there are they more at risk no they're not are the population we're talking about more at risk because of what they're choosing to do on a day-to-day basis then yes i think the other really interesting thing is when you look through it as well is body fat is related to iron storage as well. So the lower your body fat, the likelihood is that you could potentially have lower storage of iron as well. And so, you know, again, 
you may be then looking at the elite, the sub-elite, the very good age groupers with very low body fat percentages and body composition, and is that negatively impacting their ability to store iron as well? So, you know, there is those types of considerations as well with this type of population. And, and certainly, you know, anecdotally, those athletes with very low body comp often I do see that they have issues with iron storage. Yeah, and there's there's some really interesting kind of unique attributes associated with athletes that promote iron loss, which I thought were really interesting. One of them's theoretical. One of them is this idea or this notion that uh, triathletes and runners specifically, the impact of running causes a breakdown of red blood cells in the lower extremities that actually causes enhanced loss of iron, which uh, is is a particularly in- novel <laughs> theory about why iron is lost. Never been proven in any way, but it's an interesting theory. Another one has to do with increased renal excretion of iron. And a third one has to do with sweat. Sweat is not a major cause of iron loss, but there is a small amount of iron in sweat. And given that athletes sweat at a much higher amount than the general population, that is going to be a source of iron loss. So that iron needs to be replaced. Another issue has to do, as we mentioned earlier about diet, athletes who are fastidious about their diet may not be taking in as much heme sources of iron and maybe getting a lot of their iron in inorganic forms. Well, it turns out there are a lot of other things that athletes eat that actually inhibit the absorption of some of the iron they're actually taking. So when an athlete takes a cup of coffee along with whatever they're eating that happens to include some of their iron, well, that coffee, it turns out, actually inhibits the absorption of iron. Other things that can inhibit the absorption of iron are what's called phytates, which are found in whole grain cereals, which many athletes have at the same time as they may be taking iron. So they have to be careful. There are things that, on the other hand, actually promote Dairy things also, a calcium found in yogurt, cheese, all the milk, of course, inhibits iron uptake. But there are things that promote iron absorption. Vitamin C is one. So taking a glass of orange juice along with any iron-containing foods is one way to promote iron uptake. There are other things such as arotenoids, which are found in orange-colored fruits and vegetables, and certain fermented fruits as well, fermented foods as well. So athletes have to be cognizant of all of these things. And there are many recommendations that suggest that iron that athletes need to be taking higher amounts of iron per day than do non-athletes because as you've mentioned a couple of times now athletes are not representative of the general population who have a lower daily recommended allowance of iron how much iron are you suggesting for your higher level athletes well just on your point as well i think the timing of like if someone is supplementing your point being like so i will generally recommend to an athlete supplementation in the evening a, because they're not drinking mm-hmm. coffee in the evening. Well, they shouldn't be. So that eliminates that. Yeah, right. Um, dairy is probably, it's easier maybe to restrict dairy in the evening versus, say, breakfast and maybe around lunch, snacks, things like that. So, you know, if you give them that two-hour period of not eating some dairy, then, again, supplementation, maybe when they're brushing their teeth, actually taking their supplements in the evening could be beneficial as you said obviously taking it with some vitamin c is important and some of the supplements will have vitamin c built into it so somewhere between 100 milligrams and 500 milligrams of vitamin c at the time i think in terms of yeah look it's always got to be food first well it should be a food first approach now as you highlighted though sometimes food first doesn't cut it and it doesn't it doesn't provide enough 
Now, whether that's due to dietary preference, as you said, veganism or vegetarianism is going to make it very difficult because of the bioavailability of the non-heme iron sources. Even for someone who's an omnivore eating enough, you know, iron-containing foods, depending on their activity levels, it may not be enough. And I think that's when supplementation of iron can be very beneficial to the athlete. I think depending on which literature you read and for how long you do the supplementation, we'll, we'll tend to recommend somewhere between 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams of elemental iron, and they may do that for up to eight weeks. It depends, again, whether if they're at altitude, if they're just at normal altitude, how deficient they are or how insufficient they are, and then dependent on their training level. You can also do the alternate day supplementation regime, which, again, depending on what you read, there's better bioavailability by doing it on an alternate day basis, but also a reduction in potential signs and symptoms from iron supplementation, say abdominal pain, nausea, and things like that. So I think, you know, whether certainly what I see is you see better improvements in ferritin levels when supplementation is between that 100 and 200 milligrams per day or on alternate day basis, certainly supplementing in the evening, supplementing with a form of vitamin C, again, whether that's supplemental vitamin C or something as easy as some orange juice in the evening or kiwi fruit, then that, that can be beneficial. As well. Of course, kiwi fruit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Look where you well, are. Well, <laughs> I'm not a kiwi. I'm an Aussie. But yeah, I know, I know, but you're, you're in the region. You're in the region <laughs> yeah. where it's probably a little more accessible. <laughs> exactly. You know, you mentioned the amount of iron in foods, and I think it's worthwhile just quickly kind of going over that. I have a... I have a, a very handy little table up here that is examples of heme and non-heme sources of dietary iron. And the source is from Nutrition Australia. And it has some heme iron sources, things like beef. 100, mil, 100 grams of beef contains 3.5 milligrams of iron. Uh, 100 grams of pork, 0.8 milligrams of iron. So not very much. Only because this is from Nutrition Australia, it, it contains 100 grams of kangaroo meat, which also contains 3.2 milligrams of iron. So in case in case that's on anybody's table. But then on the non-heme iron sources, and this is this is important to note because as we mentioned earlier, heme iron tends to be much more bioavailable. So when you're getting that 3.5 milligrams of iron in beef, most of that is being absorbed and integrated into the body. If you take a cup of raw spinach, you're getting 1.2 milligrams of inorganic iron and only about 30 to 50 percent of that is actually going to be bioavailable so you're only really getting 0.6 milligrams from a cup of raw spinach and raw spinach is considered to be one of those things that's fairly high in iron tofu is fortified in iron so 100 grams of tofu has three milligrams so just something to think about but i, I really like what you said scott about food first so getting your iron from your food and thinking about it that way and then supplementing on top of that if you feel like it's necessary. Certainly, I think women should have, as we've mentioned several times, especially menstruating women need to have a much lower threshold for considering supplementation of iron. And again, this should all be based on having your levels assessed 
You shouldn't just be taking iron just for the sake of taking iron because you're worried about it. You really should know your levels before doing that because as Scott alluded to, iron can cause side effects and you don't want to be running into those if you don't need to. Now, another food that contains a, a fairly good example, good amount of iron is spirulina. I've spoken about spirulina several times on this program and a serving of spirulina, which is uh, two tablespoons, contains uh, four milligrams of inorganic iron. So again, not all bioavailable, but a fair amount. Yeah. Scott, go ahead. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Did on that list because I was. It's funny because you were looking at the Australian list. I was looking at the USDA nutrient list and the way they rank it. But I mean, something that I recommend a lot to athletes if they're happy to eat it is liver. So liver. You, yeah. you mention all those products. Now those products, you know, you're, you're talking three point two milligrams per hundred milligrams, two point five. You go to liver. You're talking somewhere between seventeen and thirty milligrams. Per hundred grams. Now, a lot of people will turn their nose at liver and you're like, well, hold on, eat pate. And they're like, what do you mean? And it's like, well, pate, everyone loves pate. Well, most people like pate, yeah. Have some pate in the (laughs) evening. Have it once, maybe twice a week. Obviously, cognizant of vitamin A, you don't want to be taking too much because of vitamin A. However, pate is such a good source of iron. And again, you know, is it the supplementation? Is it the introduction of, say, pate once or twice a week for athletes taking it? But we see fairly good improvements in their ferritin stores when they do that over sort of an eight-week period. And I think it's one of those foods that's often forgotten and ultimately delicious that can be- Liver is on this list as well. Liver is on this list as well, but I skipped it because I knew, just just I I knew intuitively that athletes would turn their noses up, as you said. (laughs) But but you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Oysters, clams, really high sources of iron as well. Like, And that's often forgotten about. Yeah. You're talking, what, clams, 28 milligrams per per 100 grams. Now- yeah, 100 grams of clams is quite a lot. However, you can certainly build that into your weekly schedule. Mussels, clams, oysters, you know, who doesn't like to eat those types of foods if obviously you don't have a shellfish allergy or intolerance, but something like that included into your diet on top of, you know, some potential supplementation is a very real, you know, possibility for a lot of athletes to include. Yeah, excellent points. I want to kind of just sum things up because we've we've had a very wide-ranging conversation on this and I want to make sure that athletes are coming out of this with some kind of concise understanding of what we're saying here. And so based on what we're both saying here, iron deficiency without anemia is is really prevalent amongst athletes, more so in women than men, but even in men, much higher than we would anticipate, anywhere from 5 to 10% in men and as high as a third of women are going to be iron deficient without anemia. A smaller number will have anemia as well. We both suggest that menstruating women should consider, if not absolutely get iron levels at some point as a baseline. And if that baseline is normal, then fine. Probably doesn't need to be monitored or followed in any specific way, so long as your diet contains adequate amounts. For for women who are found to be iron deficient without anemia, the, those numbers should be followed as iron supplementation is done to make sure that those numbers recover. And for men who are found to be iron deficient without anemia, the same thing. 
we both recommend iron supplementation for athletes who are not getting adequate sources of iron in their diet, either because they are vegetarian or simply because they are not getting adequate sources of heme iron, even if they eat, eat meat. As Scott was saying in the range of 300 milligrams of inorganic iron per day taken at night, preferably with a vitamin C of about 500 milligrams, because that will enhance the amount of iron absorption. Am I missing any major points that uh, we should emphasize for athletes who are listening to this, Scott? I'd probably just make a couple of small points. So if we defined iron deficiency, the way I tend to do it is ferritin levels less than 35 nanograms per liter, hemoglobin greater than 11.5 grams per deciliter, and transferrin saturation greater than 16% as a deficiency marker. For deficiency anemia, ferritin is less than 12 hemoglobin less than 11.5 and transferrin saturation less than 16%. That's the definition that I use. That's based on research concerning athletes and iron status. So if athletes are looking at their numbers in their blood, that could be something that at least they could flag with their physician and talk to them about is supplementation something that's required. So you have that deficiency um, versus deficiency anemia. I think the form of iron we haven't actually discussed, and maybe that's something. So ferrous sulfate is typically recommended, but that can sometimes cause GI complaints, either constipation or some nausea and items like that. I've used polymaltose as an iron, and that tends to be fairly well tolerated. I've actually taken that, and I tolerate that very well without any signs or symptoms. And then the other one is an amino acid chelate form of iron. And I don't know if you've had experience with either any of those forms, but generally ferrous sulfate typically is what's you know prescribed or recommended for athletes. And I would say it's a very good choice at least to start with ferrous sulfate and, you know, again, talking with your doctor about what forms to take. That would be... Yeah, ferrous sulfate is the one that that's the one that's most commonly used here in North America, and it mm -hmm. is the one that I have the most experience with. It is also only bioavailable at about 33%, although with vitamin Correct. C, you could probably get that up to around 50%. So again, the reason to take vitamin C with it. Yeah. Scott? And, uh, high, and higher doses, as higher doses, as you said, because that bioavailability, like yeah. You are only absorbing people, a proportion of it. So I think that's where... Yeah, you know, most people sure can't tolerate it. more than 300 milligrams. In I my experience, it tends to... Yeah, most people can't tolerate more than that. Well, Scott, this has been another fantastic conversation. I can't thank you enough for, for joining me here today again. And something tells me that we'll be doing it at another point sometime in the future on a different subject. If you're listening and you have something that you'd like to hear me discuss with Scott, I hope that you'll drop me an email or put something into the, the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group and let me know because it's always a pleasure to speak with Scott and he is very educated and very insightful on these subjects. Scott, thanks so much for being here today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. 
You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.